want to welcome you to Revelation in the End Times. We are in week 13 and we are looking at chapters 14 and 15. Okay, again, welcome everybody. Chapter 14 and 15 in the book of Revelation. We just came out of chapter 13 in the end of chapter 13 talked about Nero Caesar, talked about Neron Caesars, we talked about as well as another form, an alternative spelling to Nero in Hebrew. Those, his name adds up to 666, which is quoted there in scripture, and Nero Caesar adds up to 616, which is also an alternative number in some manuscripts, depending on the style of manuscript and where the manuscript came from. Now that moves us into chapter 14 and why I point out the mark of the beast or the mark of Nero or the mark of the Roman Empire, that type of thing, is because we now are going to see the mark of God. And so there's a contrast if we were reading this all the way through and we didn't stop for a week, we would see this, this contrast, and, and it is heavy. And so the mark of God contrasted with the mark of the beast. So let's look at verses 1 through 3. John says, Then I looked, and there was the Lamb. And we've already been introduced to Jesus the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion. Zion is another word for... Uh, Heaven, it can be an allegorical term for heaven. So there's the lamb standing in heaven. And with, uh, with him were 144,000. And we have been introduced to the 144 before, and we'll talk about them in a moment again. But who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads? So these 144,000 have the mark of God written on their foreheads. Verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sing a new song before the throne. And before the four living creatures and before the elders, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. So we have... An image here of the 144,000 who have been marked by God. The 144,000 we would say represent all faithful people who have uh, gone before us. But we could also, I mean, I, you can take some liberty to, to say, okay, maybe it is just 144,000 people. There could be other multitudes in heaven. But 144,000 people, who are these folks? We're going to get some descriptors of their character here in just a minute in verse 4. But these folks could be, as we look back on the previous chapters, um, 12 times 12 is 144. And so you have you know, the different tribes of Israel, 12,000 by 12. You have those. You also have symbolic understanding that possibly this could be 12 tribes of Israel mixed with 12 tribes from the uh, apostles or disciples, and so you have this idea of not only the, uh, the Hebrew people, but also some 
maybe Gentiles mixed in with that, even though that most of the apostles were all Hebrew, but this representation that the gospel was for everybody and there are believers in, in Christ in, in, in all nations and all types of people. In verse 4, as we'll get into as well, it talks about first fruits. And so these could be some of the first foremost believers in Jesus. We just, we don't really know. Again, we're just trying to throw some things out there and, and make some educated guesses. So what do we know is a mark of God in our own lives is baptism. We believe in the sacrament of baptism, that we are being marked as a family member of God, we now identify with God. We identify with Jesus Christ in our baptism, whether we remember our baptism or not, whether we are you know, baptized as an infant, a child, or an adult, but we carry his name in our hearts. And so we are marked now in a spiritual way, not a literal way on our forehead, although um, we sprinkle, we baptize, you know, uh, usually with a cross on the forehead and symbolically under, you know, with this meaning that we are marked by Christ. There are, is some reference to different things. He Hebrew people would understand this to things being on your forehead. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 36, you can go back and read that. It talks about the high priest. I believe it's talking about Aaron who um, wore a tunic uh, at that time and, and uh, sorry, wore a turban at that time. And on that turban, it talked about how they needed to create a specific symbol and wear it on the forehead, okay, and around the band on the forehead. Also, the Shema is, um, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Um, Love the Lord, your, you know, God with all your heart, mind, soul. Um, and this was an this was the Israelite sort of mantra, a motto, and the I know the Hasidic Jews in today's world actually do at times have a box on their forehead and they uh, carry it around um, the Shema in this box, and so from Deuteronomy chapter six. So there's all these different sort of references again. As we move through these two chapters, just continue to remember that we're going to see some images, but it's not the importance of the images so much as the interpretation of the images that are so vitally important. And so that's why we're trying to figure this out as we go along. Now, in verse 2, we hear a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters. Descriptor, really, of God's voice, you could say, but this sounds like uh, it's it's many voices singing, but you have the sound of many waters, you have the sound like thunder, you have it, it sounds like a, a plane of harps, and that those are all interesting descriptors. But if you look at that, the sound of many waters is powerful, right? Have you ever been at a, a dam or a spillway and, and you heard rushing water? That is powerful sounding. And then thunder is in unmistakable, isn't it? Usually uh, we hear thunder, we know it's a, it's a crack of a lightning, but it's, it's the thunder that we hear, and, and it's, it's unmistakable. And then you get to this thing where it's like, okay, powerful, and, and you, you're not, you're, you understand it, who it's coming from, or it's coming from heavenly realm, but then it's also calming. Um, it's like the sound of harpist playing, you know, it, it would be calming. So 
you have all these different descriptions of this sort of this voice and it's very interesting to me and and then we hear about this they sing a new song before the throne before the four living creatures that we have actually encountered before which would be representation of all creation there and uh, before the elders so any comments one through three anybody have anything Okay. All right. So we'll go on to verse 4 through, we'll look 4 through 8. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. These follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been redeemed from humankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and language and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Then another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Verse 4 and 5 give us some descriptors of these faithful people. First, they're undefiled. You could say they were ritually pure, whatever that might mean. Okay. They, uh, two, they follow the Lamb. They follow Jesus. And third, they are first fruits of the new covenant. That's where you could say they're first fruits of following Jesus. The fourth is there are um, they have no lies. They're sincere. They speak the truth in their life. There's no deception. Then the fifth thing is that they're blameless. They basically live in a state of grace given to us by God. And so th- those are some healthy descriptors there. These are, um, you, when you get into virgins. Virgins, uh, a lot of times, this kind of gets us off the path, but virgins are those people that um, they've been symbolic. It's been used symbolically uh, as a term throughout Old Testament for many different, in many different ways, and especially as a servant of God. Um, Those who are virgins, actually, Jerusalem is called a virgin, a servant of God. I mean, so there's you can see that history there. Again, some recasting of the Old Testament and the New Testament. God is doing that through this vision that John is getting. So, some commentaries actually in verse 4 for sure believe that possibly these words were added by a monk who was copying things down from one manuscript to another throughout the generations, and they added these because it sounds like the life of a monk, more so than the life of an early Christian, actually. And so, um, whether that's true or not, who knows? So, I don't think it matters, but it's something to note. And uh, Verse 6, we encounter the first angel here. And this angel is a, a, good, uh, a good person to hear from, I guess, be, compared to the second angel that brings doom. But the first angel basically announces the gospel of eternity, that this gospel of Jesus Christ through 
through uh, the work that he has done is for every nation, tribe, race, you know, every person, okay? And we hear that and references to that in, in Matthew 24, 14 by Jesus, the gospels for all. This angel is uh, an angel of eternal things, but an angel of the gospel is followed by an angel of doom. And so it's, a, it's kind of a, a strange contrast there. But again, it fits right in with apocalyptic literature and the understanding of like there is warning that will take place at some point in time. If you continue down that path, you might find yourself on the wrong side of God. Now, we just came through chapter 13, which was all about finding yourself on the wrong side of God and worshiping the wrong thing and worshiping the beast, worshiping Caesar, worshiping Rome, Roman, the Roman culture, those type of things. So here's an angel says, hey, this is a gospel for all people, and then followed by an angel of doom. What does that tell us a little bit about the gospel? It tells us some hard truth. I guess you could say about the gospel is that the gospel is good news for those who accept it, right? It's, it's through faith. It's through what God's done for us. We just need to accept it. But then on the other side, it's bad news for those who just deny it and reject it and choose to do their own thing, uh, choose to never accept the, the grace of God, the love of God through what Jesus Christ did. So there is a contrast there. There is an important lesson for us there. Um, and then we get the second angel who comes in with this sort of message of doom. And we get similar imagery. And if you're taking notes in Ezekiel 23 verses 30 through 34, and that you will hear about the wine of wrath. And so that's a term at the end of verse 8 that we heard there. But this angel announces that, um, Maybe the doom of Rome. It depends on who you felt like was Babylon at that time, okay? There are some scholars that also believe that Babylon is the apostate, as they say, Jerusalem. And why is that? Israel. Uh, this is the, the people that literally rejected Jesus. Jesus' own people rejected him, rejected the gospel. So um, some believe that in the rejection of the Messiah, there is this, there's this great doom that comes upon Israel and, and, and God's supposedly chosen people at that time in Jerusalem is totally destroyed in 70 AD. So we get again a revisiting of that historic uh, thing in some symbolic way. I, I don't know. I, I don't know about that, but it's a it's worthy noting. So anybody have any thoughts, questions? Any of that? Okay. <clears throat> so then we have the third angel pops up, and um, we're going to read verse 9 through 12. Um, then another angel, a third, followed them, crying with a loud voice, those who worship the beast and its image, and receive a mark on their foreheads and on their hands, they will also drink the wine of God's wrath. 
poured unmixed into the cup of his anger, and they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast, its image, and for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, whose, uh, those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. Um, we get a picture of doom here, and sometimes we don't like those pictures, but we get a picture of doom for all those who have denied Christ. Here's what we do not know, and I'm not trying to soften it, but we do not know, and we cannot read into this, is that we don't fully know if this is like punitive judgment for just a short period of time, uh, or this is eternal judgment. That is something that we don't actually don't know and we can't figure out from this portion of text, okay? I am sure we can add our commentary to that, and I'm sure many people have added their commentary to that, but we just don't know that. whether. But this is a sort of... Um, picture of eternal judgment in the sense that at some point in time there's this there's a spiritual issue in people who choose to deny God who choose to put a mark of the beast on their lives and and worship the wrong thing and there is going to be some some issue there and we do pick up a little hint of what that sort of torment is is there's torment where it says in verse 11, there is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast. Um, when, when your life, I'm trying to apply it to us, when our life is spiritually off, it seems like at times there's just no rest. It seems like we worry about the wrong things. We see this with people that are um, never content with life. We see this with people who have run after probably the wrong thing and destroyed their families, destroyed their relationships, destroyed a lot of other things. Life has robbed them of something perhaps that seems so precious to them that ultimately really doesn't matter eternally. And that sort of causes them torment. It causes them to lose sleep. It causes them to and we have this in our own life. We worry about the wrong things, and so there's no rest there. And we have a contrast here in this chapter, actually, and I didn't read it yet, but in verse 13, I read it at, all, at every funeral that I do, but it says, um, especially any committal service that I do or incurnment where we have the ashes, but it says, uh, blessed are the dead who from now on die in the Lord, yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So you have no rest going on for those people that have chosen the wrong way, and then you have a picture of rest. And, and this is important for us to understand not only spiritually for ourselves, but also for the first century Christian who they just seemed like their whole life was in turmoil because they were being persecuted for what they believed, they didn't have a Christian nation in which they lived. They needed to hang in there. And this text is just saying, hey, hang in there. It's like it's far worse ultimately, and your souls will be much more restless if you uh, abandon the very faith that you have. You are going to rest in the Lord, whether it's today or in the future. You are fine. You can find rest and, and peace in Him. So any thoughts, questions, any of that? Anything hit you that differently than... All right. First 
verse 12 is like the key thing for me there. Uh, after all the other verses, here's a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. That that's It just tells us it's, it's right there in the middle of the chapter and it continues to remind us that endure, endure, you know, follow God, um, hold fast to your faith. And, and we know why the first century Christians reading this would need to do that, but also for us uh, in present times. So let's look at verse 13 through 20, the end of this chapter. Uh, I read this earlier, but, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who from now on die in the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and there was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown in his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Again, we are going to get some crazy imagery, images here, and so don't get lost too much in the imagery. But And another angel, this is the fourth angel, came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to the one who sat on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So the one who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel, this is the fifth one, came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the sixth one, came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire, and he called with a loud voice to him, who had the sharp sickle, use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth. For its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung a sickle over the earth and gathered the vintage of the earth, and he threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trotted outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as horse's bridle, a horse's bridle for a distance of about 200 miles. So, very interesting imagery here, uh, uh, probably a lot to unpack, um, but we need to be reminded again uh, that there are familiar images in Jewish thought uh, to judgment. Um, these are some very familiar images um, about Jesus, about uh, the Messiah coming, uh, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, you're more than welcome to look it up. Uh, it, there's a tie-in there of how the, the Messiah will come. The I mean, just it's interesting um, imagery. I understand that. It's been there in prophetic, apocalyptic imagery. It's been there before. It's been there for generations. Again, it's a style of literature. It's a style of vision. Now, the fourth angel uh, announces, basically shouts to Christ, standing on a cloud, that the harvest of the earth is ripe. And what that exactly means, I don't really know. I would say that it means that there are people on the earth, if you're reading this in the first century, there are people on the earth who are faithful. And God will take them up at some point in time. And maybe it's time right now. Um, maybe some of them are being persecuted and being killed, and, and he's reaping the harvest, okay? So that would be something that would be somewhat comfort, comforting to a first century Christian dealing with persecution. 
possible death. Okay, so uh, verse 16, basically Jesus reaps the harvest of his own people. Um, is that a literal thing at some point in time? Uh, there's a point in history that we, yes, we've talked about the, um, we've talked about the rapture, uh, concept of the rapture, but we've also talked about the rapture of, of us moving up towards God and, and as God comes down and establishes the new heaven and the new earth all at once. Now, um, can you just swing a sickle around the earth? I mean, again, if you want to be too literal, it, it's like, well, the earth's around, so that really can't happen. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, these are images. These are images that are important for us to, to break down and look at. So, verse 15, uh, 17, we, we have the fifth angel comes out of the temple in heaven. He's got a sharp sickle. He comes out of this temple. He's carrying a, a sickle. He's He's reaping the harvest of those who will be judged. This is not the, the faithful. This is not those who have uh, been living in Christ. These are those who have been uh, not doing that. So there is this sort of picture that, hey, you, you might not want to give up on your faith. Also, there is going to be some sort of punishment. It goes together with what we just saw. We don't exactly know how long that will last, whether that's eternal, but at some point in time, there is going to be some sort of punishment. And we get in verse 18, the sixth angel who came out from the altar, he had authority, which is interesting, over the fire, over the fire of God's altar. And he shouts to the fifth angel to start the harvest. We, we have this phrase at the end of verse 18 that we hear, vine of the earth or vine of the land. It's a common term that was used in a, a, a apocalyptic literature, especially Ezekiel and prophetic literature. In Ezekiel chapter 15, verse 1 through 8, the vine of the earth, the, um, you know, uh, just an understanding that has to do with judgment. And so these people who are destined for judgment because they rejected the gospel are ultimately going to have some price to pay for that. And in verse 20, it's a very strange, uh, horrific image, and we wouldn't say that a loving God would just cause blood to go everywhere, but it, it's a strange image. But ultimately, the, the enemies of God are defeated. The enemies of the people who are faithful are defeated. That's a good way to look at it. So, Any thoughts, questions, comments, things that you've read, heard? Um, that's chapter 14. Anything? All right, hopefully you're hanging with me. Uh, uh, let me summarize a lot of this again. It's just that it's a call to endurance through all that is, they are going through and they will go through possibly. And it's worth enduring. It's worth believing in the gospel and continue to believe in what Jesus has done and who Jesus is because ultimately in the end God wins and there is going to be judgment if you if you choose to reject the the good news of God. So this does get this stays in tune 
with the understanding all throughout Scripture as well, even what Jesus taught, that there is a little bit of judgment there for people who have chosen to reject Him. Um, now, we put our own spin on judgment and what that's going to be, and, and, and we can look at how long that's going to last, and we're going to see some other images, and we're going to have to break those down as well as, as we move forward uh, about the ultimate eternal judgment and where people go and, and what that means. So we'll talk more about that. So let's uh, press on and look at chapter 15. So, um, 15 through uh, verse 1 through verse 4. Then I saw another portent. Remember, portent means sign or revelation, to, uh, like an important thing. So, uh, these are uh, one of the many signs that John sees for the remainder of the book. Then I saw another portent in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues. Now, these are the seven plagues and the seven angels, and, and these are good, not so good, but these are chalices of judgment, you could say. That's the terminology used here. Um, we uh, will see them in chapter 16 next week, and I will have a handout that shows the comparison between them and the trumpet judgments. So it, it's almost like you get a, it's not another set of judgments is actually just a reiteration of them to an extent. So, again, symbolic understanding of things. Which are the last and for, uh, for with them the wrath of God is ended. Okay, and, so, uh, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds, Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your judgments have been revealed. Um. So again, we're going to see in 16 this chalice judgments, but we, we see in here that there are seven angels with seven plagues. Um, this chapter, chapter 15, begins in verse 1. At the end of my, my interpretation, it it's uses wrath of God is ended. Okay, is that what yours says? Wrath of God is ended or complete? Might be in your Bible, complete. Now, if you swap over to the end of 15, chapter 15 is not a long chapter. It Mine says seven angels were ended or complete. That's an important term for us to understand because this Greek word uh, tilio uh, or telio would be, it means complete. It means ended. It means exhausted. Okay. So uh, God's wrath is, is complete. It's ended. It's, so this is, this is the, the signal of it, and, and it's come to completion. Now, we have some interesting pictures as well in, in verse 2 where we see the sea of glass, and now it's mixed with fire. Um, the sea of glass we encountered in chapter 4, verse 6, but now it has this fire in it, and so that just adds to the judgment side of things and 
there's something going on here. And, but there's the victors from this great ordeal we also get there too. They're standing on the, beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So um, they're the victors. They're the ones who remain faithful through everything. Uh, again, another, another picture of the faithful. And they sung after what's called the Red Sea Experience, this song. Um, you, you might remember that, that uh, their worship broke out after the Red Sea Experience with Moses and the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 19. And this was a part of that song. It's also uh, in Psalm 92, verse 5. And so there's some repetitiveness there as well. So, again, some tie-in to the Old Testament and the Psalms. Uh, any thoughts, questions on any of that? One through four. Anything? Okay. All right, so verse five, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter, and we'll see. We have some time left. We might kick in a little bit to the chapter 16, or we might just end and call it a day. So it says in verse 5, uh, After this I looked, and the temple of the tent of, the, of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues, robed in pure, uh, pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were ended or complete. Okay. Verse 6, uh, just some notable things. We, these angels come out of the temple. Um, they're robed in bright white uh, linen. Uh, or pure bright linen with, with golden sashes around. This is a priestly dress, very similar to um, what you would see perhaps in images in the Old Testament. So this is royal, this is heavenly, this is priestly, and so these angels have a particular role. Uh, it's very, uh, maybe some different type of, of angels, we don't know. They're, they're spiritual beings. Um, and then we have in verse 7, then the one, of the one of the four living creatures gave these seven angels, these seven bowls or chalices full of God's wrath. And um, there's a slight transition going on here that there's no more warning, right? There's no more, um, hey, you know, if you could just remain faithful. This is something different. This is a complete judgment. This is... Um, uh, again, that word uh, comes into play. But we have the four living creatures. We have the lion, right? We had the ox. We had the man. We had the eagle. And you could say it's nature or creation. All of creation is handing itself over to God's purposes and handing itself over to God's judgment, okay? And, and there's no more warning. Like at po some point in time, it doesn't matter what your purposes were in life. doesn't matter who you followed, how you followed them, those type of things. Everybody is going to have some sort of, um, you know, God's complete judgment come upon them. Now, how, how you survive that and, 
and how you come out of that. It has a lot to do with your faith, but we will actually explore some of those things in coming chapters as well. In verse 8, we get a beautiful picture of the smoke, which is actually the presence of God. In Isaiah 6, 4, you can see that. Um, I reference it, too, as the Shekinah glory, the glory of God, uh, sometimes is, is uh, seen through just smoke and the presence of God, uh, a pillar of cloud, those type of things. So you have a similar imagery of all this stuff. But again, it is complete, and nothing, no one can go into this temple uh, where God is uh, until the seven angels and the seven plagues, all this stuff is complete. So there's that word again. So. Any thoughts, questions? That, that that's a, I mean, it's just to me that's that's a little wild imagery, and I'm just trying to kind of uh, give us what we, uh, you know, what we can take away in in a healthy way. For me, a summary of verse of chapter 15, and all these verses would be, you know, at some point in time, it sounds like there is a there's a spiritual judgment upon our lives, and um, especially those who have sought not to be faithful, and um, they'll just have to, to deal with what comes next after that. So, thoughts, questions, anybody? <clears throat> All right. Um, let's just look and, and do an intro into ver uh, chapter 16, um, and we can kind of look at what we're going to see, what we're going to encounter. Uh, again, I said I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a handout. I get to build that handout um, from some notes. But we have seven angels. We do see these chalice judgments throughout the entire chapter. We'll encounter all seven of them. We'll hear, we'll see all sorts of imagery there. Um, we see the vindic uh, vindication of the martyrs in verse 4 and 5. Um, where, um, you know, at one point in time we heard the martyrs cry out, when are we going to be vindicated? You know, when is justice going to, you know, that was at the beginning of Revelation. And uh, here we get some vindication for that. What that means exactly, don't know. We don't have a lot of details on that, especially not from this text. Um, the, we have the plagues of Egypt. Uh, we had the trumpet judgments in Revelation, there are, and then we have the chalice judgments in Revelation. There is so much correlation. They're not in the exact order of each other, but you have like the, the sixth plague in Exodus has boils that comes with it. Um, the first trumpet um, in the judgments in Revelation uh, was on the land, a third of the earth, uh, trees, grass. That's an important part too is that a, a third of everything kind of took a hit in those trumpet judgments and in the chalice judgments. There's no stop. I mean, this is like complete. Okay. Again, that word complete because it's not a third of the land, not a third of the land. It's not a third of this, not a third. It's just like everything is affected by it. Okay. So that's something as well. And the first chalice judgment on the land like people are disfigured with sores um, so you have you have on the land you have sores you have boils we have we have similar sort of um, imagery of judgment throughout the old testament and the new testament and possibly eternal judgment whatever that means so 